Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community. Brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. <laughs> On today's show, we are making rare disease podcasting history. What? Amy and I are joined by three of the most prolific and committed rare disease podcasters out there. Also just stellar people. Stellar people as well, another good title. Effie Parks from Once Upon a Gene, Kyle Bryant from The Two Disabled Dudes, and Bo Bigelow from Stronger Every Day. Those three titans behind the mic join us to discuss patient centricity. And once again, Flow Podcast's Jessica Lauren Richmond is back with the latest installment of The Well. That will run directly after the panel. And Amy and I will hit on some recent community news just beforehand. You got all that and more coming up on this episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Welcome to a historic episode of Bloodstream at that. We're so happy you're with us, listeners. We couldn't do it without you. Well, we could. Technically, it would just be ridiculous. Well, that that's true, actually. Well, we could do the pod without you, and that would be, quote, ridiculous. Thank you, PJL. No Close problem. quote. Uh, so thank you for helping us not be ridiculous, listeners. Perfect. Good job, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. And remember to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. Episodes of Bloodstream can also be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. How about that? Facebook. It's wow. still around. Hey, and as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or if you have questions for Patrick or myself, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Com. Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy, I'm for it. <laughs> and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, because I said that really fast, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Amy Board, another loaded episode. We got a fun roundtable, yes. great group of fellow podcasters yes. from the rare disease world talking patient centricity, which, you know, admittedly is a buzzword, but it's also a critical concept and, and one that has many different interpretations. Yes, it's a fancy word. I'm sure everyone who's listening who is um, involved in the bleeding disorder community or the rare disease community has heard the word patient centricity. Patient centricity is uh, basically attempting to put the patient first in an open and and sustained engagement of the patient to respectfully and compassionately achieve the best experience and outcome for that person and their family. Off the top of your head right there, that was, right? <laughs> I Googled it, everybody. <laughs> it's a Googled word, but I also think that, uh, you know, as rare disease patients, we interact with so many um, institutions that mm. uh, can provide us many wonderful things, care, treatment, um, ideas, connection, awareness. Um, and so often those um, institutions so desire to be patient-centric, they mm -hmm. want to put the patient first. And, and, and our roundtable really digs into what does that even mean? Right. 
Right. What does that mean? And as patients, um, what does that feel like? What does it feel like when it works? What does it feel like when it doesn't work? And we have um, gathered the most wonderful, vulnerable, articulate people to have a panel discussion about patient centricity. So get ready for that. It's going to be awesome. There you go. So that's coming up in just a little bit. Before we get into that, there's been a bunch of news that's come out in the last number of weeks. <laughs> so much news. When we were putting this together, the bullet points of news, like sometimes we don't have news to share. And today there's some news. There's some news. And there's also a little pet peeve that I have to talk to you oh. about within the context of the news segment. Oh God. So here we go. Let's get into it. So a few stories to highlight, three of which have to do with uh, novel therapies, mm-hmm. therapies under investigation, getting closer to potentially maybe being commercially available. (laughs) Um, The first, and I'm going to read headlines from various articles that were written about these events, and I'll cite the articles just for, you know, something transparent, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Or also nerddom. I'm going to cite the way to out-nerd yourself. (laughs) So the first one, CSL-bearing gene therapy makes comeback after hold for FDA priority review. This was an article published in Fierce Biotech on May 24th. And basically, if you've heard about the the Unicure Hemophilia B trial that was going on, well, that that program was acquired by CSL-bearing. So now when you hear about CSL-bearing's gene therapy for hemophilia B, it's what you may have previously known to be Unicures. And you may recall, they, they mentioned in the headline, there was a hold. Um, there was a patient death on that trial. They had developed a, a form of liver cancer. There was an investigation done as is precedented when there's an event. They found that there was no reason to believe that the liver cancer and its progression had anything to do with the gene therapeutic. This person had underlying reasons that that may have formed. And so the trial was unable to resume. Um, now, CSL is on the, the precipice of maybe, just maybe, being the first company that has a gene therapy option for patients with hemophilia B. So eyes on that. I don't know if we have a date that we're expecting to learn more. I don't know, Amy, if you've heard something. I have not heard a date. There might be something somewhere. Uh, The only other date that I'm aware of uh, well, he, actually, here's a line from the article. The FDA aims to make a decision on therapies accepted under priority review, which this uh, this now, program now has, in six months compared mm. to 10 months for a standard review. So, mm. you know, here we are in June. Maybe we're looking end of year, beginning of next year, Q4, Q1, somewhere right. around there, but based on these projections anyway. And notable that in March, the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, accepted an application from CSL as well, and they are also currently reviewing the therapy. So I don't know what their timeline is. Um, we did, I think we may, we may have mentioned it on a previous episode of Bloodstream. I don't remember, Amy, where we were when talking about this, but there is some precedence for gene therapy drugs in particular to get approved in Europe before the U.S. Yes. So there's a chance perhaps yes. that this is one of those drugs too, and we may be hearing about the CSL heme B drug being approved in Europe before the U.S., we may not, but certainly it's getting closer and uh, notable that it, it now has this priority review tag from the FDA. On the other end of the news spectrum, so to speak, uh, again, I'll read a headline, Biomarin delays planned FDA filing for hemophilia gene therapy. So as listeners will probably recall, uh, last year, or actually two years ago now, in August of 2022, uh, their application was unexpectedly rejected by the FDA. Theirs is for a hemophilia A gene therapy. The CSL uh, one we were just discussing is for a hemophilia B. At that time, August of 2020, Biomarin was asked for 
two-year follow-up data on clinical trial participants that it has since obtained and provided. However, um, there's more that the FDA wants to look at. There was one analyst by the name of Paul Mateus, uh, an analyst for Stifle. In a note to clients, he wrote, quote, in our view, it's hard to really know if this changes the pro- the probability of success much either way, as it appears that after recent discussions with the FDA, Biomarin has garnered more clarity on specific data analyses that the agency is looking for, and these will take a few additional months to compile. Mm-hmm. So that starts to give some specifics. Okay, there's data analyses that's, looking, that's being looked for. To be clear, there's not a request for additional follow-on data. So previously, the FDA said, Biomarin, we need two more years of data. It's not what they're looking for now, but they want the data to be analyzed in some specific ways. There's not more information made clear about that, um, but at least from this one analyst, there's a projection that it may take a few months to compile that data. So uh, Biomarin, in the meantime, will not be filing for their application until they have gotten that data in order. So maybe we'll hear more about that Q3 going into Q4 sometime in the fall, early winter. Um, Certainly, I'm sure for folks at at Biomarin, disappointing news for people who have been excited about that program, you know, disappointing. But on the other hand, I don't know. I can't say that I'm feeling disappointed because the FDA wanting more data before it approves for the first time ever a gene therapy for hemophilia A and an irreversible one-time therapy does not seem totally outside the realm of... uh, expected or normal or, or agreeable to me. Lastly, in the, the novel therapy news dump, uh, FDA grants breakthrough designation to BIV-001 uh, BIV for hemophilia A treatment. BIV-1, wait, B- BIV? BIV what, there's two Vs, two zeros, but only one one. BIV-001, <laughs> B-I-V-V-001. But don't get me started. So, okay, here's, we're going to get into my pet peeve now, then we'll talk more about BIV-101. Okay. Do you know that we should actually be calling Biv 001 <laughs> by its name? If Amy, you want to, you're looking at the same script I am. You want to take yeah. a shot at that name? How do you say that name right uh, there? How dare you give me throw me that? Cool, I'll throw myself under the Great. bus. Great, Efinascotocagalpha. We were just talking about Biomarin's drug, you know, Valococstogene Roxaparovaca. <laughs> and previous to that, we were discussing CSL and their gene therapy. You know, good old Extranacogene Desaparovovic. Y'all, these are just letters. These are not words. It looks like I put the keyboard in front of Vivian and just Y'all, said, go. Yes. Yes. I, I'm sure I get it. Science, there's reasons. These are these like mean <laughs> things, but you've got to be kidding know. me though. Why? We've got the numbers and the letters. Yes. We got we got things like BIV001. Yes. We're like, okay, if that doesn't work for you, if BIVV001 doesn't work, how about Alpha? Then we have to come up with nicknames for Alpha. Then when it's commercialized, it gets yet another name. So the names. Who? I, I want to go to the presentation where somebody, like the researcher or the physician, I don't know, somebody that's very important that like knows how to say these names, like does the presentation with the full name. That's what I want. I want to experience it. I want to see them do it. I want to be at the meeting where the very first person speaks to their colleagues about what they're going to name the thing. Yes. And I want to be in that room like in just room. so that when nobody raises their hand to say, could we maybe take some uh, other ideas? <laughs> that I can pause the room and say, please, please take some other ideas. Yeah, do you think there's, do you think there's a whiteboard? There, do you think they whiteboard it? There's a moment before and after the name is established. <laughs> That's as much as I know. I don't know that they whiteboard it. I don't get the impression that they do. I think they just put they, science things no 
together. There's no way that they can. This, they okay. can. They, I believe in them. All right. Anyway, the, so uh, what does the breakthrough designation for BIV mean? So BIV is a new, it's a factor replacement, um, uh, recombinant factor replacement therapy, an extended half-life therapy, but one that has a potential, much longer half-life than even the previous extended half-life therapies for hemophilia A. Um, if you want to learn, well, I'll get to that in a second. What's notable about this is it's the first recombinant factor eight that doesn't rely upon von Willebrand factor's half-life in the body for how long the half-life of the factor eight drug itself is active. So when I would take a factor eight, a standard half-life recombinant factor eight drug, von Willebrand factor's half-life has a great deal of influence over the half-life of that drug in my body. I just think of it as my factor eight half-life because von Willebrand factor stabilizes factor eight. And I don't have to think about the, the von Willebrand part when I'm putting factor eight in me. So my doctor says, you have an eight-hour factor eight half-life. I go, great, wonderful. I have an eight-hour half-life. But the caveat is, if you could manipulate that von Willebrand stabilization element, then we wouldn't have a factor eight molecule that is dependent upon the half-life of von Willebrand factor in order to be viable. So what BIV-001, also known as what it does is, amongst other things, replaces the segment, this one particular segment of von Willebrand factor that stabilizes hemophilia A, that's, <laughs> that stabilizes factor eight. Um, they've created a version of it in the lab. So that has enabled the, um, the factor eight, the, the, the half-life to just grow a lot. And if you want to hear more about all of that, I would highly recommend you listen to the Global Hemophilia Report. Uh, episode two on novel therapies mm. has a bunch on gene therapy, on BIV, on all of the other stuff being worked on. And we have 10 different scientists, researchers, and hematologists on there. People like Dr. Stephen Pipe, Dr. Lindsay George, Mark Skinner, Glenn Pierce, many others. Global Hemophilia Report, get it wherever you get your podcasts. But I just wanted to, Amy, point this out because the fact that it's been given the breakthrough designation also means that the FDA has analyzed the data. And again, while there are extended half-life recombinant factor eight products currently available. The FDA reviewing this data has said, no, but this is a, th th I forget what the technical terminology yeah. is, but there is something uniquely valuable here. So we're going to make sure that this thing moves along because it could have a great impact on the lives of patients sooner than not. So great. interesting to note, yeah. again, just like those other two, more news to come. This is like the news before the news in yeah. a way. Um, and then the last two pieces, and then we can wrap up this this section. I, I'll be real quick about this. You know, the World Federation of Hemophilia's Congress was last month, as you know. Their humanitarian aid program is something that's very meaningful to me, to believe, to bloodstream, to a lot of the community. Well, once again, CSL, they donated, they made a commitment to donate uh, 500 million units of factor therapy to the program. They have donated previously. In fact, I believe this is their fifth Multi-year, yeah, I'm just looking at an article now from Hemophilia News Today, uh, fifth multi-year commitment, but that number is significant, 500 million units. That's a big, big number. And Roche, they also extended their partnership with WFH. Roche is the parent company of Genentech, the manufacturers of Hemlibra, the mimetic non-factor replacement therapy. It was notable to me at um, WFH, I can see if I'll pull up my notes real quick here. The number of people with hemophilia on prophylaxis through the humanitarian aid program between 2016 and 2021, just shy of 3,000 people worldwide. So we got a long way to go, just wow. shy of 3,000. Yeah. But what's notable is that a third of that are people with on emesismab, on hemlibra. 
So there's about 2,000 who are using clotting factor concentrates. Right. About 1,000 that are using Hemlibra. So Roche extending their commitment to the WFH even further is significant because, yeah, now a third of the WFH patients on uh, humanitarian aid patients on prophylaxis are using their product. So some good news there about support for the global community, some interesting updates related to the pipeline and what's coming and what's being reviewed and where are we in the process. Uh, And again, if you're interested in all that stuff and you want to go deeper into all that stuff, the Global Hemophilia Report is a podcast for you. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts or you can look at bloodstreammedia.com. Okay, everybody, before we get to our panel, a quick moment to thank CSL Bearing for their support of this episode of Bloodstream. The Bloodstream podcast is brought to you in part by a new campaign from CSL Bearing called Portraits of Progress. In the 1950s, life expectancy for people living with hemophilia was less than 20 years. However, over the past 70 years, the treatment landscape has evolved rapidly, giving patients new options and a new lease on life. CSL Bearing and acclaimed portrait photographer Rankin have teamed up to chronicle the evolution of hemophilia treatment by sharing portraits of the incredible patients, caregivers, and professionals who are personally affected by the disease. Check out www.portraitsofprogress.com, a virtual photo exhibit to learn more about the personal struggles and triumphs of the hemophilia community and how the pace of progress in hemophilia treatment has transformed lives. From the days of minimal treatment options to the potential of gene therapy of today, this community has seen it all with more hope than ever before for the future. We were able to spend some time with a Portraits of Progress participant and community member Jerron Hill at HFA as he shares his story. My name is Jerron Hill. I am a severe hemophilia B patient and also a community advocate. What's your story with hemophilia? Um, So I was diagnosed at birth with hemophilia, and through the ups and downs, we went through several different uh, products and everything. Um, It's like there's certain things we could not do. Um, We could not play sports, but I found other ways to uh, be more active, be more inclusive as attending camps and becoming a camper slash camp counselor slash mentor. That's so great. And in your life, you know, what has, what has it felt like to quote unquote suffer with hemophilia? Has it ever felt like a burden? No, it has felt like a blessing. And tell me why. Because without hemophilia, you could not be able to travel to different places, see different things, get more opportunities to participate in other events, um, to speak about your uh, uh, dealings with advocacy as well. And tell me a story um, about advocacy. What were some of your favorite moments advocating for yourself? So I advocated one time at a Legislative Day um, for insurance. When I lost insurance and... Uh, I had the support of the HemoB community. They rallied around me. They helped me get better access to care. They helped me get on a free trial when I didn't have no medication. So they've stepped up and supported me through uh, every step of the way. That's great. Have you had to make any changes to your lifestyle because of your hemophilia? No, except when traveling. And tell Um, me about that. 
carrying um, extra factor in case I need to infuse while I'm traveling and also just taking some uh, precautions when traveling as well. Have you been involved in summer camp? Yes, I have for over 25 years. That's so great. And are you a counselor now at your summer camp? Yes, I am. What would your advice to younger campers that are maybe fearful of coming to their first summer camp, what would you tell them? Well, I'd say you'll get to meet other people. you get to hang out. You get to, you know, make a friendship bond that lasts forever. And what was summer camp like for you as a kid? It was fun. Uh, we did horseback riding. We did archery. We did fishing, canoeing, all the normal activities that the camps provide. And also, we also had game nights. My favorite part was when on Wednesday, we go to the cookout. We have some hot dogs, some hamburgers, some baked beans, and we have a hayride with, uh, we get wet. <gasps> Water guns. Water guns. You have like a water fight? Yes. They sprayed us while we were on the hayride. That's so great. Yes. Did you learn how to infuse at camp? Yes, I did. So one time I was at camp. Um, so she, the nurse, uh, we were getting factor. And the nurse uh, just showed me how to infuse. So she just held the vein for me. And I put the needle in and I infused the medication. Oh, that's great. And yes. uh, when did you start infusing on your own at home? Um, so I would say it's been rough a little bit, but I'm learning to infuse at home as well with the help of my mom. Oh, that's great. Thank you again to CSL Bearing, And remember to check out www.portraitsofprogress.com by clicking on the link in the program notes. All right. Is it roundtable time? It's roundtable time. <laughs> With that, let's get to our patient centricity roundtable. Okay, well, this is a treat. So Amy and I are now joined by three of our favorite podcasters for a discussion about patient centricity and what exactly that means. I think this is the first time I have been on a Zoom or a phone call or, you know, never even, I'm not even going to bring up being in person, but I think this is the first time that I've been with all of you on the same thing. So we are joined by Effie Parks of the Once Upon a Gene podcast, Bo Bigelow of the Stronger Everyday podcast, and Kyle Bryant of the Two Disabled Dudes podcast. Thank you for being here and welcome. Appreciate you joining Amy and I today for this conversation. Uh, your shows and voices will be familiar to some, but not all listeners. And your stories may be even lesser known to Bloodstream listeners. So before we dive into discussing patient centricity, let's kick off starting with you, Effie, uh, to learn a bit more about your connection to rare disease and what got you into podcasting. So Effie, we'll start with you. What's your connection and what got you into podcasting in the first place? Hi, everybody. So happy to be here with some of my favorite podcasters also. Uh, yeah, the road to why I'm here today, I uh, I have two amazing little kiddos. One of them, my five-year-old son, Ford, was born with a rare neurological disorder called CTNNB1. And even five years ago, you know, I couldn't really figure, I couldn't find my footing 
and it became a it became a pretty isolating experience and one that nobody around me really understood, uh, which set me out on on a path to like find my people. And funny enough, Kyle, I'm always like yammering on about <laughs> Kyle and Sean, but they're two of the first people that I found where I was like, that's that's them. They're my people. Oh my gosh. And it just like opened up this little piece of relief um, for me and really inspired me to find more stories like mine and to ultimately tell my story and eventually create a platform where others could do the same so we could feel seen and heard and find resources and share all of the things as parents who are raising kids with medical complexities. And so it was born out of desperation. <laughs> well, that's a mother of invention, as as I have heard. Uh, Kyle, since you and Sean were name-checked there, why don't you go next? <laughs> yeah, well, Effie, I imagine that you have received very similar comments from so many people um, just because of the impact that you've had. So that's really incredible to hear. I love hearing it every time, uh, semi-selfishly, but uh, thank you for saying that. And so... I was diagnosed with a rare disease called Friedrich's ataxia when I was 17. And after high school, I was like, what the heck? Do I well, actually, no, after college, after I graduated and did everything I needed to do, I was like, what the heck do I do with the rest of my life now? And I have this rare disease that's threatening to end the enjoyable things in my life. What do I do with this? And I saw a guy who was riding his trike around the country and he had MS. And that's what flipped the switch for me. And I started riding a trike and I love it. And that's the place I would always rather be. So if I'm with you and we're hanging out, just a baseline, realize that I would rather be on my trike, all right? Um, but <laughs> so so I, I'm on staff at the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance, and we fund and facilitate research worldwide to treat and cure Friedrichs Ataxia. I do a lot with the community, and I absolutely love my community, my family, and— um, I do the podcast with Sean on all of our off time and love doing that as well. Thank you, Kyle. Um, and Bo, what brought you into rare disease and podcasting? It's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, I, Our daughter, Tess, uh, she's now 12 years old and she was born with a rare genetic disorder called Howe Fountain Syndrome. Uh, when we learned about it, when we learned about the gene that was affected in her, uh, the disease was so rare that it didn't have a name. Uh, and so I think I, talking about what Effie was alluding to there, the isolation piece of it, I think I was in a place when we first learned about the disease where I, I was really trying to process it and try to figure out, you know, how do I feel about this? What do we do next? It's a lot of that stuff I think is just so overwhelming when, when you are in rare disease land because you, it's not like you can turn to your, your friends and your neighbors and even your family and talk about those things because they just don't understand, right? They don't live what you live and, and they can be supportive and loving and, and accept tests for who she is. And, and they do that. And I love that. But, but to be able to talk to people about it really makes a big difference. And so for me, making my show, making stronger every day, it was just 
let me just try this once a week and see how long I can do this. And, you know, just do a few minutes every week and just, just try things out, just say them out loud and try to own, own my story, you know, just, just say it out loud and, and see how it feels. And so I would go back and listen to the episode and, and be like, Oh, so this, this difficult thing happened with, with a doctor's appointment or with something relating to her condition. And, and I would be like, how did I feel about that? Let me listen. Let me, let me kind of go through my old episodes. And, and so over time it became this catalog of sort of my feelings and, and it's really helpful, I think, to, to, to put it out there, to connect with people who are listening, but also for yourself, just to, just to put it out there. And like, you know, COVID is happening and my wife is saying, to me, you know, uh, in terms of processing all that was going on, she's like, why don't you do an audio diary? And it's like, I do, I already do. I have been doing it for years. It's called my podcast, you know? So that's how I got into it. And I think through the podcast, what's been really amazing is as our community has grown, our How Fountain group has grown, more and more of those folks are listening and starting to go to the show for answers. Like, oh, there was an episode about vision stuff or, oh, you have an episode all about GI issues and what you see with tests. Like, so it's almost a, a reference for them. Um, and, and they can go to it and listen and kind of find out like what our experience has been, what my wife and I have seen in tests and, and get to know her also. I think that's the other piece of this that I think, you know, I definitely feel that way about, about your podcast, Effie. It's like, you know, I've, I've never met you in person. I hope I will at some point. I've never met Ford in person, but I feel like I know all about Ford, you know, and I don't have to, you know, say to you, what's going on with Ford? Cause I already know you know, you, you tell me every week. And so I think that's really powerful to keep, keep your tribe in the loop and let them know what's happening with you with podcasting. For sure. Wow. Such great responses. Not a big surprise, but just thank you. I'm feeling, I still am just overwhelmed by being able to do this with you guys, but I got to get over that because it doesn't make for great content if I just keep repeating that for the next 30 minutes. So <laughs> let's get into what we're here to talk about together, which is this idea of the patient voice or the patient caregiver voice, the community voice. Many advocacy groups, affinity groups, corporate companies, they will highlight that they value the patient voice or keeping the patient at the center of everything they do. There's probably a somewhat obvious answer to this, but there's also a lot of nuance, I think, too. So I'd love to hear from each of you to start. What does the patient or the caregiver voice mean to you? Bo, maybe we'll start with you. What, what do those things mean to you? Sure. I think at the base of all of that, it's, it's seeing the patient as a, as a person, recognizing that they are a person. And um, I saw this tweet from my friend Seth Rothberg the other day. He's like, don't ever refer to the subjects of your, your clinical trial. They're not subjects. They're people. They're patients. And I think that's really what it's all about. They, if, if you're going to do it right, you really are seeing kind of where they're coming from and what's important to them and what might be hard for them. And so I think, you know, when you're designing a trial or, or anything that involves connecting with patients and their voice, it's really, it's that, it's, it's seeing the complete picture of, of who they are and, and what their needs might be and, and what might be challenging for them and, and designing what you're going to involve them in with that in mind. Thanks, Bo. That, yeah, I hear that. And Kyle, what, what about for you? What, what does this mean to you? The patient caregiver voice, what, what comes to mind? Well, I, first of all, I fully agree with Bo that it's a person. You know, I think that it's not a token. 
That's a token phrase sometimes, I feel like, the patient voice. But there's a person, there's a, a being behind it that needs to be respected um, as a person. But I also, on a certain level, it's, it's a bigger thing, too. It's the patient, it's the parent, it's the caregiver, the PRO. You know, the patient report outcome, it's the advocacy organization. It's all of that together that needs to be considered in the actions of industry or or the actions of all of us, I guess. Yeah, I have found that when people have asked me, like, what do the hemophilia patients think? I'm like, I, I, all of them? I don't know. I haven't polled everybody. <laughs> I, do you want to narrow that down for me? I can tell you what I think. Yeah. I can share like what another guy my age or like a certain, but it's also like not a singular thing either and sometimes can right. be kind of framed that way. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it difficult, right? Like it is a difficult thing and and I think that it deserves that we all recognize that. There's not one answer there and and it's hard for everyone, so we just have to work together to figure out how to make it work. Well, and speaking of there's not one answer. Effie, what is your answer? What's your what comes to mind for you when we talk about the patient caregiver voice? Obviously, I agree with my great and wise friends. Um, but yeah, something I say on my podcast is a lot is I need all the help I can get. And I really believe that for drug developers, industry, like you need all the help you can get. And part of that need is connecting with the patient groups, with the caregiver groups and seeing what their day to day is like and really connecting to them so you can meet their needs, right, appropriately and how that looks for them and not how you think it looks. And like Bo said, right? Like it's not a, it's not just a patient, it's a person. And we have to have compassion, like real compassion for that because this is real life. It's not just a business. It's not just about money. And these are real results that you're getting. And I think that when you hear these stories from people who are able in whatever way they can to speak up and to share them, that it is such valuable data and it has to have a seat at the table, period. I agree. Um, I, I guess I'm just curious to see if anybody gets, um, I don't know, a, a bit annoyed or put off sometimes when we hear a company say, you know, that they're valuing the patient voice, that they're really centering the patient voice. That That is something that we hear a lot. Um, and I just, I wonder if, um, if any of you think that that gets tedious or repetitive or sometimes exploitative, you know, just kind of wondering if you feel that way. Kyla, I guess I'll start with you. Yeah, I can certainly totally agree with that. Um, but I, I think it's a, a factor of not really seeing the patient as a person. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a fundamental thing, I think. And that's the result when, when you take it as a token and not see it as an actual person behind the token, I guess. Yeah. Effie, do you have feelings towards that? Well, I I am an optimist, <laughs> and I love that these conversations are being started, right? And I love that there is a token line because it's something. But, like, I went to one of the world's largest health conferences last year, and there were speaker after speaker, glorious posters all over, and not one person who was speaking at the three-, four-day event was a patient. Not one. I looked, 
And that was so disheartening. And Mm -hmm. almost every speech was on the patient voice. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge disconnect for me. And I don't know if it was COVID and whatnot of why there weren't any patients on the panel, which could have contributed to it. But sometimes things miss the mark, obviously. Um, But I do believe, and I've spoken with so many great people in industry who value this idea and who are really working towards it. So, yay, go, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Bo? I definitely have felt the frustration of of the absence of patients that Effie is talking about, you know, that that it's a whole panel or a whole event or weekend or whatever dedicated to patients and there's not a one in sight. Um, I guess I feel like some of that is, is I think sometimes pharma and biotech firms, they want to do that and they, and they say it and they have these kind of platitudes about the patient voice, but they don't really know how. Uh, you know, the keynote speaker will say that phrase, patient voice, but just saying that doesn't mean that you're listening to the patient voice. It doesn't mean that they're at the center of all you do. When, when you say that phrase and then the rest of your keynote is about your company and, you know, shareholders and whatever, we're not at the center. But if we show you how uh, to put us at the center, that, that can change things, I think. Um, you know, I have a great example of this, which is... Um, my friend uh, John Novak sends me this article recently, and it's it's the title of it has patient voice and in it, and I'm like, oh, here we go, another one of these that says it but doesn't do it. And uh, I'm delighted as I'm reading to find that this actually does pay attention to the patient patient voice. This article was by uh, a woman named Wendy Erler. She's at Alexion, and uh, and she's talking about a clinical trial and how you have to design it with patients in mind. And her example was. You have a family coming to this hospital for multiple days in a row with their kid who has these conditions, is is medically fragile. And it's like, she's wondering, what are these people going to eat for five days? Is it going to be like nutritious food that's going to keep them going and be able to keep them healthy and give them the energy they need in order to be part of this? Because it's hard, right? Being in the hospital for a number of days in in a row, it's like, it's like a marathon, man. It's it's so hard to do that, to keep your energy up, to keep your spirits up, to just do that is an endurance activity in itself. So Wendy's article was awesome because she's like, nobody had thought of that. Nobody had thought of like what the difference is between a nutritious meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and, you know, fast food or whatever the, the family just grabs in this uh, hospital area. So, so she's saying like, when you design the clinical trial, you've got to think about that. You've got to think that these are people who are going to need to eat something good. And what does that look like? Let's make a plan. Let's talk to them. What do you like to eat? Do you have a special diet? What does that look like? And what are, you know, let's make a plan. Let's involve them from the beginning. So I thought Wendy's example was amazing. That's just like, that's it. That's exactly what we need. Thank you, Wendy. Like, awesome. You know what, Bo? And I think that it seems so simple, right? Like, hey, Let's think about food and water. Like that's that's a good place to start, right? Basic, yeah, basic human you know, needs, yeah. Basic human needs, totally. and just like the reality of of what it could be, like that empathy of really putting yourself in someone else's shoes and what it could be. Like it, it's it takes a lot, and I can imagine for a big research company or a manufacturer, you know, with so many different pieces that are siloed, you know, the, you know, bureaucracy is just so difficult. Um, 
but I do appreciate the the effort, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Effie, did you want to get in on that point as well? Well, I did have, it's reminded me of something. I spoke to a few women whose kids were involved in clinical trials recently, and uh, they were all telling me what what happened for real and like just the little things that they don't think of because they're not looking at the person. You know, one lady was like, yeah, they told me that they're going to pay for all my food when I'm out for the clinical trial, but I can't afford to pay for it and get reimbursed. Like, I need you to give me a debit card to buy my food for that week because I can't afford it and wait for you to pay me back. And then another woman was like, the place that we had to go wasn't even accessible. I couldn't even get my kid out of the car and onto the high level, like, uh, curbs that were in front of that building. Like, little things like that, right? Where they're not doing these small, small things to think about how does a patient get in the door, get up, go through the day and go to bed at night with a, with a healthy meal in their belly and I've not of, feel scared financially. I've often gotten such a kick out of at these hemophilia meetings that take place at these hotels and sometimes these massive properties where it's like, okay, the first session is in ballroom, you know, the iguana room and that's over here. Mm-hmm. And then the next session is going to be over in the salamander room. And you're like, oh, the salamander room, that's got to be near the iguana room, right? No, it is not. It is a three quarters mile walk down the the hall to, okay. And you've just got swarms of these limping hemos like myself going from one (laughs) session to another. Everybody, you're like, oh, I didn't know everyone. We all apparently use adaptive equipment for, it's like, well, here we have to, because here it's like we're at an amusement Uh park. And I know some of it's the realities of having a lot of people in a meeting place. Like there are there are some pieces of it that are just challenging, but there are moments where it feels like inclusivity and adaptation has not even been considered by meeting planners. And I saw Bo like cover his face at one point when you were talking, Effie, and I was like, yeah, I'm with you. Like when some of those moments, I'm just like, this is this is a joke, right? Where are the this is a candid camera episode. I know it is. <laughs> where are the cameras? Yeah. Um, So let's talk a little about organizations, companies that we feel as though are highlighting or amplifying the patient caregiver community voice effectively. Are there any examples that come to mind for anybody off the bat? I have an example. There was a company that was doing a clinical trial for our community, and they were trying to decide on the pill size to give. And Swallowing is an issue in our community, and so you'd think that a smaller pill would be better. But you would. You would <laughs> that's very intuitive. But, in fact, I would rather, and I think it's it, so hopefully other people in our community would feel the opposite because— with a larger pill, I can feel where it is in my mouth. I can manipulate it with my tongue mm. a lot easier and figure out how to get it into to where it needs to go. And the back of my throat gets swallowed, right? And so after we had that conversation and they understood the issue of the nuances of the swallowing issue in FA, then they can move forward with their clinical trial in a way that was going to serve the patient a little better. That is an excellent example of where having information, lived experience informing decision-making can make all the difference. Because as we said, yeah, it's somewhat intuitive if you don't have FA to think, okay, a smaller pill would probably be better. But it took you, what, a sentence and a half for, I think, each of us. Like, oh, right. that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So 
that's a that's a perfect example. Effie or Bo, do you have any examples like that of a, a light bulb going off and getting to see how that made a difference? It's a stare down. It's a stare down. Effie nominated oh, Bo. Bo waiting. nominated Effie. Okay. <laughs> I'll go. You know, mine's a mine's a lot different than Kyle's example, <clears throat> but I moderate a lot of panels, right, for like pharma companies and all the things, right, where they want to talk about specific things to to the people that work there or whomever. And I got an interesting email from the middleman, and I just want to shout them out because I think they're so amazing. Most of you know SmithSolve, but what SmithSolve does is they facilitate um, webinars and things with you know big pharma companies like Alexion, where they'll bring in patients and caregivers so these people can hear our stories. But what SmithSolve did is they were like, you know, we do this all day. We do you know 20 of these a day for pharma companies and biotech and all the things. But why haven't we done it for our own staff? Like our staff needs to really understand what's going on behind the curtain and not just be sending the emails and setting up the Zoom calls and making all the things happen. But we want them to know what they're working for. And it was a really special special uh, event of deep listening. And I mean that. They... It was almost like they were like, oh my gosh, me too. I get to, I get to meet you. And... I just thought it was really cool and they went the extra mile when that's not even their job really. Right. That's but that's a great it's also a great example too of how sometimes the the best move or the next move anyway that that we can make is something that's right in front of us or starts at home, so to speak, right? A company like SmithSolve being like, well, what can we do for our own people? Even even as a company that's obviously doing things right if they have a number of clients and are so active, but to just look at what could we still be doing even better. That, to me, when I hear a story like that or encounter an organization that is evaluating its own internal processes and people like that, it gives me such a boost in confidence that they're asking themselves important questions, they're being, they're they're, they're soberly analyzing who they are and what they're trying to do and determining are our values being executed in the way that we work or is there more that we could do to realize those? So I think that's an excellent example of of just like the work can start right at home. Uh, Bo, anything from you on this uh, on this idea of companies doing, highlighting the patient or caregiver voice in effective ways? Um, I don't have a ton of examples. I think our, our foundation is still not really at the point of a clinical trial. We're still in the early stages of things, but I, I will tell a story of um, our, our first conference when we went to um, Baylor College of Medicine. Um, the organizer, uh, Dr. Christian Schaff, who he's kind of the expert on our disease, he planned this whole conference. And what was great about when we arrived is that um, all the parents wanted to attend these info sessions and learn about, you know, endocrinology in the How Fountain patient, but we have our kids with us. Right. And so it's like, I can either take care of my kid or listen to this presentation, but I can't do both. And so they had arranged for childcare for everybody. And, you know, my first thought was, all right, so who's going to know how to take care of tests? This is a a big job. I'm not going to just hand her over to just anybody. And so it was all people who were uh, PTs or OTs and and were used to dealing with people with disabilities and just had kind of seen it all. Right. Nothing, nothing would phase them. So I brought Tess in and there was a whole session where I got to explain, like, this is what to watch out for. 
This is the dangers. These are the things to keep in mind. This is what you want to watch. Here's my cell number. Call me if anything goes on. And so once I, I had hand, my wife and I handed Tess over to this person feeling like, wow, you're going to, you got this. You're going to be okay with Tess. And now I can go to this info session and I don't have to worry. Is Tess going to be okay with who's taking care of her? Like, they have my number. If something's going down, they can text me. But otherwise, like I was able to really focus on the conference and, and on hosting the piece of it that we needed to host. And I thought just like that, that thing, that childcare piece having been solved that way, I was like, rock on. This is great. That is incredible. That's, that's a legitimate story of patient centricity. I think that's, that's incredible. That's cool. And it also brings back the idea that rare disease, really any chronic condition affects an entire family unit. Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about, okay, we have an educational session. Well, okay. Well, if the caregiver is going to that, what's going on with that person they give care to? Okay. We got to make sure we account for that. Um, because there's a family unit here that we have to acknowledge. So based on these, based on this conversation thus far, who has some advice? Let's do advice. Who Don't you love to give advice? Who has some advice for organizations, groups, companies on how to better incorporate the patient caregiver voice into their work and into their branding? What could they be doing better? Some ideas have already been shared uh, thus far, which I think are really valuable, but some other ideas of what, what can be done to make things better. Whoever would like to take that first. Effie gave a big sigh for the listeners at home. Big, big sigh out of Effie <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Kyle, you're off mute, so I'm going to voluntold you. What do you have oh, for man. us? What, what advice can you give? Well, so my advice is to utilize the patient organization as much as possible. They're the connection to the community. And they're the middleman that really needs to be always in the middle, connecting industry to the patient. And so my advice to industry, I guess, and to the patient is to always reach out to your patient organization to, to be able to connect either way. I totally agree. And I was going to try to remember to say something like that, Kyle, uh, for the people in industry, like go to where we are, go hang out with us, go to our webinars, go to our conferences, listen to our podcasts, read our blogs, follow us on social media, like go to where we are and be our people too. like immerse yourself in, in our world. Uh, and also, I guess for other types of advice, you know, I just think that what it's like to manage a, a kid with, with medical complexities is it's so big, you know, and we don't have a medical background and we're managing medications and changing symptoms and feeding tubes and how many calories they're getting. And, oh my gosh, what's happening to their bone density? Cause they never stand up. And all of those things, the emotional and the mental bandwidth that it takes and for us to function and listen and be in appointments and get the information and absorb it and practice it and teach others in our community, it is a lot. And so what I would say is use your time so wisely because it only takes two and a half, three, <clears throat> five minutes to sit with someone and actually listen to their concerns and to make them feel like, oh my gosh, they listened to me rather than an hour and a half appointment that I've been in where I don't think you heard me at all. 
really just kind of sit down and pay attention. Because if you're going to come to this as a human being to another human being, it's going gonna, it's gonna to block out a lot of the noise. I couldn't agree more. Really well said. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think, I really think language plays a big part of that. You know, like for me, if I'm on a phone call with somebody who is in science and working on my disease, I've got 20 Wikipedia tabs open in front of me. In order to keep up, I got to be Googling stuff during the whole conversation just because it's another language, right? And I don't speak it. I don't have a science background. Not very many of us parents do that are dealing with this stuff. And so, you know, I got that's what I do to keep up when I'm on the phone. So, so if I'm meeting with you and you're speaking that language, chances are I'm probably not keeping up. I don't know exactly what's going on. I'll maybe write some stuff down to look up later, but I think being able to talk to people in, in just plain language and, and just make it, make it understandable in a way that's useful, that, that makes a big difference for me. That would be my advice for sure. That's excellent advice. And it's such a communications 101 kind of principle. Who is your audience, right? So, okay, I may be able to speak about um, CTNNB1 as a, a, as a foremost expert in the world, right? Because I'm one of the few doctors who, but if I don't translate that as I start talking to even caregivers in that space, if I don't acknowledge that I now have a communication challenge, that I have to take seriously or else, to Bo's point, everything that's being said is either going to be lost in translation or I'm going to just pick up bits of it to try to follow up on later. And then it's it's such a muddier way to learn. Um, and I have found that there are, I will say by and large in my experience, and I don't know if anyone has had different experience, but I will say that the medical science liaisons, the patient engagement leads at a number of companies that that I at least interact with, it seems as though this is not lost on them, that they understand that this is an important part of their role, the degree to which they're actually able to bridge the gap. And it's not an easy challenge either. I acknowledge that. We talk, Amy and I, for podcasts, talk to doctors and, and scientists all the time. And it's it can be really difficult to translate into plain or what they call plain language summaries, like they now publish for clinical trials and reports. It can be really difficult to, to make that translation happen but that doesn't mean it isn't important. Just like it can be difficult when we were talking earlier about, okay, well, we want to account to me for uh, people here for five days having food. Where is that food coming from? Are we sending them to a restaurant? If we're sending them to a restaurant, is it accessible enough? Do they have the space? What time does their lunch service end? Because our schedule is going like this. Oh, people need to use a this ramp or this uh, elevator, okay, is that going to add time or logistics? Do we have to account for that? And the, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to actually implement some of these things, even the simple ideas, but that doesn't mean it's not work worth doing. As we, uh, as we start to wrap up here, I want to conclude with asking you each if you have any final thoughts. So we just did a little bit of advice, but some final thoughts and maybe more so for other patients and caregivers and community advocates who are listening, not so much companies or organizations, but individuals, what more can we as patients and caregivers and community advocates do to help the organizations and the companies that are designed to serve us in the end? What can we do better or more of to help this idea of patient centricity be more fully realized? Who has thoughts on that? Kyle, you're off mute again, so I'm going to just, you know, that's what happens when you're off mute. 
Hey, man, I haven't put my meat on the whole time. So, yeah. You're brave. Um, <laughs> uh I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about how the industry side needs to understand the patient. But I think it's a two-way street. And I think that we as patients need to always be thinking, well, I think that we as patients need to be thinking about what industry, what's important to them as well. And we can meet in the middle somewhere and maybe we can check a few more boxes on both sides of the equation. If we're thinking of each other, that's what a relationship is, right? It's not easy. Everyone knows that. And each party is thinking of the other. And I think that's going to make us really effective. If our patients are thinking of that and they have the right training to be able to have the right conversations. Um, I think it takes a lot of effort from our side too. That is a great point. It is a relationship. A relationship is a two-way street. That is a very important point and shouldn't be lost. So thank you for bringing that up in this, in this conversation. But what about for you? What comes to mind for you? Or would you like to respond to anything that Kyle just shared? No, I think that was a great point, Kyle. And I think, you know, what I like about what's happening now is more and more organizations are talking to each other. And I think that is key. So if you're about to enter into a deal with a company, um, find out who else they've worked with and then call that person, you know, call the person who runs that organization. We did this recently. We are going to, uh, issue some money to somebody to do some work for us. And I just want to know, like, are you guys any good at this? Let's find out who else has worked with you and what does that look like? So I get on the phone with somebody who's worked with them and, and they told me, this is what was great. This is what they needed to work on. This is the deal they offered us. I mean, that's what I think is so beautiful about this community is everybody is willing to share their homework. I talk about this all the time. And I think it's one of the best things is people don't keep things back. If you ask them, what was your deal? Or what does that document look like? Or will you share it with me? Almost everybody says yes. If they're allowed to, if they don't have any legal problem with it, uh, you know, anything stopping them legally, they'll do it. They'll share it with you. And so I think the power that we have as a community is, is knowing each other and talking to each other about these various aspects, because that's that's going to make things happen. Well said. Well said. Effie, anything you'd like to respond to? Mm-hmm. Both excellent points. Keep the lines open and educate yourself, like Kyle said, and both sharing your homework. Yes. Like maybe we should have a rating system and just keep it as a, as a open doc for everyone to update. But I would say, I would say speak up and make your voices heard and tell your stories and, you know, nothing about us without us, right? Like think about that mantra because nobody knows what you need unless you tell them. And that goes for so many areas, but in our world of rare disease, like we we gotta we gotta open up the lines of communications and we have to see ourselves in other people's lives, including them to us and us to them, like Kyle said. And I just I just think that when we come to this and look at the real human components, it makes it even that much more exciting to get the job done because we're helping people. 
And pe- people don't know what you need unless you tell them Effie is true. Um, it's true in, you know, to Kyle's point earlier about relationships, it's true in all relationships, as my therapist reminds me. And I also appreciate that as people who are affected by rare diseases, it's not, and I'll speak for myself, it's not always easy to ask for help. And it's not even always easy for me to identify what it is I need because my habitualized behavior, especially in times of need, is to figure out how to move forward anyway. And there is value to that. But what I've learned is that part of my work at this stage of my life involves slowing down enough so that I can at least identify what it is that I need, whether or not in that moment I plan to address it or to just keep marching forward to at least acknowledge what the truth going on within me is. So it's important for us to communicate those needs. It it also means that we then have to identify them, which for me is the harder part for me at this stage of my life. We are just about out of time. We've maybe even gone a little over. I don't know. Time's a flat circle. Who can tell, really? But before we depart, again, thank you. This was so fun. I could do this for hours. I'm sure no one else wants to, but I could. And I'd love for you to each just tell listeners again the names of your shows and where they can find them. We'll have links in the program notes, but let's just give them one more shout out. Kyle, you know why. I'm going to start with you. Yep. Uh, because I'm unmuted. I can't I can't <laughs> handle the mute button, man. I can't manage that. It's too much. <laughs> That's fair. Right. That's fair. My Our podcast is Two Disabled Dudes. We have a whole lot of fun, and we talk about some serious stuff in a funny way. And it's twodisableddudes.com, and on Twitter, 2DD Podcast, Instagram, 2DD Podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Effie Parks. Yeah, that mute button's like a small pill for Kyle, so I get it. I get it. <laughs> yes. Uh, you can find me all over the place. My name's Effie Parks, and the podcast is called Once Upon a Gene uh, on every podcast app at onceuponagene.com. Please feel free to message me anytime. Uh, I'd love to help you share your story or connect you to someone who uh, might be of service to you, so... Awesome, yeah. Effie. And Bo, and would you mind sharing not only about your podcast, but maybe the uh, the chats that you and Effie co-host as well. Share a little bit about that too before we go. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, my podcast is Stronger Every Day and uh, you can find it wherever you find podcasts. Um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I'm also doing a, a video version of Effie's podcast. It's called Once Upon a Gene TV. Uh, that's on the Disorder channel. And uh, it's been really fun making that with Daniel DeFabio. Uh, every month or so, we do an episode, and we're having great fun doing that. It's really cool. So you can check that out on the Disorder channel. Uh, Amy Board, I think we did good work here. I'm glad we invited our friends on. Any final word from you before we wrap up? What a joy it's been. I love y'all, and thank you so much for having this conversation with us. We know it's important, and um, just appreciate your your empathy and uh, standing up and telling your stories. It's important. So thank you. Thank you for having Thank you. Us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Effie, Kyle, Bo. Go hear their shows. Check out the program notes. And we will talk to you all again very soon. Bloodstream listeners, that was fun, wasn't it? It was fun. I love those people. I do, too. Ugh. I'm glad we had them on. Historic moment. I don't think it was. Have you ever had such powerhouses and rare disease podcasting on one Let's episode together? I know. <laughs> Let's amazing. make history again. Um <laughs> I thought it was fun. I thought it was informative. And I hope, listeners, that you did too. And I know that you have a full podcast slate out there. You've got Bloodstream. You've got Flow, The Final Summit, Summit, Pain Podcast, 
and the like. That was what I wrote for myself to say next. And the like. I wrote that for me to say. And then I said it. And then I pointed out that I wrote it to say it. But I can't recommend enough checking out Once Upon a Gene with Effie, the two disabled dudes with Kyle and his co-host, Sean Baumstark, and Stronger Every Day with Bo Bigelow. If you enjoyed the panel and hearing from these great advocates, then go subscribe to Once Upon a Gene, Two Disabled Dudes, and Stronger Every Day right now. You'll find them wherever you get your podcasts. You won't regret it. And you won't regret it. And now, over to Jessica and The Well. On my way to the studio today, there was a calvercate. Cavill, wait, no, what do you call it? Cavalcade. When there's a line of cars led by a hearse. There were cops stopping traffic because someone had died. And everyone who had lost that person was following. I mean, the person they lost was found leading them to a final resting place. Somewhere where folks could be sure to find the lost person in the future. The people in cars following their lost person, those people also technically lost... A day of work, or a day of rest, or a day of whatever they may have planned to be doing, in order to mourn. And everyone drives together to make sure no one gets lost along the way. When someone misplaces their keys, they say, ah, I lost my keys. But in a way, the keys aren't lost. They're just not where you left them, or you don't know where they currently are. And no one is ever lost. We just don't know where they've gone. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. What is it to lose? Not lose a race or lose a game or lose a promotion or lose some human body weight, but to feel loss. Not lost, loss. Is it the feeling of emptiness? Is it the feeling of a vacuum? Is it sadness, grief, longing? losses is funny because it can have different definitions within your life. When you experience loss, you grieve different ways. And I feel like if you don't grieve, then you're not moving forward. You're not growing. You know, you can't hold that in. That's Mike Hargett. He and Patrick discussed loss at HFA in April. When I experienced loss, it was based on my grandpa who had hemophilia, who passed away because of hepatitis C, but was a, was a rock, was an anchor for me. An anchor which helps keep a ship sturdy in the raging sea of life. Imagine being on a ship. Ahoy! Drop the anchor starboard! Perhaps after a long, windy sail, an adventure, or after a nearly rocking the boat terror storm, an anchor gets dropped down. And this helps the ship stay still, stay upright. It's holding down the ship on purpose. All right, raise the anchor. So what happens when the anchor is lost? Ah, the anchor's been lost. How is that even possible? My grandfather, he was a pioneer. He, he lobbied for the hemophilia assistance program for the Oregon chapter of hemophilia to help out other hemophiliacs. And... If I can be one-tenth the man that he was, I'll be just fine. And being able to, you know, grief is, is tough because I don't think grief just goes away. People say, oh, you'll get over it. No, you never get over it. It's just kind of something you learn to live with. And that's how I've dealt with making my mental health strong. Because if I'm not strong, then I'm weak and he wouldn't want that. So it's just kind of a way to honor him in, in another way too. Mike's words resonate with me. 
Being strong for the older generation is important. Dare I say we're at an interesting time of holding space for our elders' trauma? Whew, I do dare. I mean, when else have individuals had such access to mental health terminology and support systems? Dare I say never before. When else have those in their middle age, and we'll talk more about the concept of aging and its impact on our mental state next episode, by the way, but when else have those in a position to be raising the future generations also had the insight to see and cope with their elders' trauma, what they faced in the dark ages of consciousness? Never before. The time is literally now. But of course, no one knows how to do what they have not done before. How do we honor and share the successes of evolutionary thought with a generation that's leaving us or left us? He passed away when I was seven. And everything I do and wish that I could show him where I'm at today because of where hemophilia and the advancements that uh, come of it, because I've had hepatitis C, I cleared it with Harvoni. I went from 5.5 million viral load to zero within three months. Wow. And those are the things that I wish I could tell him, like, there's hope. Like, there was hope. It was coming. You did whatever you could. But I can't share that with him. He was my biggest fan. I relate. Personal share. One of my grandmothers is living in heart failure, which sort of sounds like a Tom Petty song. She's been living like that for over a year now. And I admit great excitement for every chance to share with her how far we've come since she was a single mom in 1951 since she was the first woman in her Italian family to graduate from college and earn a master's. I want her to see what women are doing in academia, in scientific research, in business, in politics, in it all, because she still remembers when a woman required a husband to get a credit card. The conclusion, change is good. Advancements are beneficial, and it makes sense to miss, even to feel a loss at the inability to share those beneficial advancements with loved ones that we know have struggled without such support. He always wanted better for me than even him. There wasn't a factor back then. He would go to the ER, sit in the ER, wait for a blood transfusion. He would always have me with him in to have me not worry. You know, he, he would always tell jokes, always make it like, oh, you know, these people are, they're just here, you know, they're waiting. It's kind of like uh, uh, you put a cake in the oven you just have to wait a little bit and then they're going to take care of you. Just like when it comes out, it's, it's perfect. That's mm -hmm. exactly what we're doing here in the ER. It will just lighten the attitude. So before Mike lost his grandpa, his grandpa was able to share something with his grandson. Before there were the beneficial advancements, treatments, developing strategies that we have today, there was a simple coping strategy. Attitude adjustment. Mike's grandpa found that a joke in the ER waiting room can lighten the mood. And that's a lesson that is not lost. No matter where Mike's grandpa is now. Thank you, Jessica, for bringing us back to and from the well. And thanks again to Effie, to Bo, to Kyle for participating in the Patient Centricity Roundtable. Go subscribe to their shows. And thanks to Bloodstream's presenting sponsor, Takeda, along with our episode supporter, CSL Bearing. Amy Board, we're next back on June 24th. Mm -hmm. What can listeners expect to hear from us at that time? Well, we're going to hear a little bit more about thalassemia, which is a rare blood disease. We have two physicians that are experts in thalassemia, and they're also 
phenomenal. And they are also going to be a part of a new Thalassemia podcast coming up Mm -hmm. down the line, down Mm -hmm. the pipe. So we're excited to um, have them both on the show. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about aging and changing on Let's Talk. Aging and changing. Aging and changing, something we all do. Which is every something day. that's happening <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> this is a show about everyday life. Um, so come back for that on the 24th. You know where to go in the meantime Global Hemophilia Report and the three shows that we've uh, featured here today. And uh, with that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, your postal worker that you like a lot, maybe somebody that you meet at the grocery store. I don't even go to the grocery store anymore. I'm just using Instacart these days, so I don't even know what grocery stores. Do they still have grocery stores is a question that I have. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I know we're at the end, but listeners, this is going to be my my PGL impression of this next bit. Ready? Have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more. <laughs> J.A., I'm just, he's, so, he's so red right now. He's so mad at me. Is there an expert or a guest that you're dying to hear from? Or do you want to be a part of our stuff? Do you want to inquire more about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream Media's podcast or our films? which is a legit thing. We do a lot of that. We really do. Email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also follow myself. I'm Amy Board and Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Shout out to all you committed LinkedIn users out there. Business people, business-minded people. You're Amy Board and Patrick James Lynch? Oh, is that how it came Are out? You both of us? Well... It wouldn't surprise anybody. No, it actually explains a lot. (laughs) Wow. All right, I got to go call my doctor, I think. But Uh, uh, in the meantime, I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch, I think. And I'm your other host, Amy Ward and Patrick James Lynch. And until next time, we'll sort that out. You take (laughs) self-care of yourself. And bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody.